We are tonight in week five of six on our series called Identity, and we've been exploring, as Rachel mentioned, what it means to be some of these things that we are now in Jesus, what it means to be a child of God, a new creation. And tonight we're going to continue in that series thinking about what it means to be a slave of righteousness. Well, I worked, um, as many of you may know, I work with students here at our church, and I've been a, working with high schoolers for almost 15 years now. And there's a lot of varieties and differences between high schoolers, but there's a kind of some threads that weave themselves through high school age. And, and I've noticed one, and as I reflect back, I think this is true, even if we remember back to our high school days, which for some of you is like, that's ancient history. Like, I, I can't remember that long back. Well, think about maybe your kids' high school days or your grandkids' high school days. And, and for me, there's, as, as I talk with students often, there's this longing for what happens after high school. And eventually, this concept or this word comes about constantly with them. It's like, I can't wait for freedom. Right? Like I'm here in high school, and I have teachers, and I have principals, and I have parents but I can't wait till I get freedom, right? And it's like they walk across that stage and move out and they're into this freedom that they now live. And of course, if you're out of high school, you know that you leave high school and is there just total freedom when you go to college? No, you still have to like go to class and turn in papers and do other things. And I'm like, oh, well maybe in the next stage of life and then we get a job and we realize, oh, I still don't have total freedom. I'm like expected to show up to the place that employs me and be on time and look the right way and do the right things that I'm paid to do. And eventually we start to realize that what we thought life was like as a high school kid where adults just got to do whatever they wanted all the time wasn't actually what life was like. But instead we exchanged what we had into a different sort of life. And that idea is true in scripture of what it defines us, our life before Jesus, and then our life in Jesus. Because sometimes we think, and the Bible talks about, and we're going to read a passage tonight, how the Bible has set us free from being a slave to sin. And we can think, free? I get to do whatever I want then. And the passage we're going to look at tonight talks about how we move actually from being enslaved to sin and what this passage tonight says to being slaves of righteousness. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, would you open them please to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 6. So we're going to be primarily in this passage tonight, Romans chapter 6 verses 15 to 23. Now, as we jump into this passage tonight, just a reminder for us as we read what the Bible talks about when it thinks of slavery, and that when Paul writes these letters nearly 2,000 years ago, it's in a different context and setting than we have today. And so slavery back then was different than how we often associate and think of slavery today. And one of the common means of slavery back then was slavery was an indentured servitude where someone to actually help themselves could then sell themselves into slavery for a set period of time for a set price to someone else, which would actually bring about security in their life. And then there was a process by which they could then come back into freedom. It wasn't necessarily like how we think of slavery today. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 15, let's just jump right in. Romans chapter 6, verse 15, Paul asks this question, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law 
but under grace by no means. And Paul has used this argumentation in Romans chapter 6. If you're looking at your Bible, if you look at chapter 6 verse 1, Paul starts that section with a similar question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And he talked about how in Christ we are now dead to sin and alive to Jesus. But because we're dead to sin, are we to continue living how we should? And Paul says, no, a freedom from sin is not a freedom to sin. It's not a freedom to live your life now however you want just because you've been set free from sin over you. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So your first point tonight as we think about what it means to be a slave of righteousness is the reality of slavery in our lives. The reality of slavery in our lives. Because for Paul, there was one or two options. You were either a slave of the one you obey. So you're either a slave, look there, verse 16. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to that which is obedient, which ultimately leads to righteousness. But the reality is that we are all in our lives, how Paul uses this metaphor, enslaved to something. We are all enslaved to something. There isn't a third option. We're either enslaved to sin or we're slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. So this first option that Paul lays out is that we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. Jesus talked about this idea as well, that we are enslaved to the sinful practices that we have. He says this in John chapter 8. Verse 34, Jesus answered them and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's a slave to sin. And sometimes we may not think we're slaves to sin because of how we define sin in our head. But biblically speaking, sin is ultimately anything that would trump God in our lives. And so if work becomes the number one thing in our lives, ultimately we're a slave to work and that slavery to our work is actually a sinful habit because it's taken the place of God and it's an idol in our hearts. And sin is things that represent or take the place of God in our lives. So when we are enslaved to sin, it's not just the wrong that we do, but the things that we do that we place before God instead of seeking after him. And if we live our lives that way, that's one option. We are enslaved to sin. The other option, which he says here, is that you are slaves either of the one which you obey, either sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. It's interesting that Paul uses this word here, the slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Because Paul's emphasis as he talks about this language of being a slave to righteous is the lived reality that God has made us, our identity and who we are in God has to now be reflected in the behavior that we live in the world. How God has made us in Jesus isn't just something we sit back and think about and say, well, that's nice, but it has to move us to action. It has to change how we live in the world. Salvation is not just a legal status that we have, but it's to be a lived experience in our lives. 
See, we can push back sometimes against this idea of being a slave to obedience or a slave to righteousness because we love this idea of being free. I mean, we sing, if you're a U.S. citizen or you live in this country for any time, you know we sing about freedom a ton. We love that we are free people. But you know that if you're a free citizen of the United States of America, that doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want. It doesn't mean that you have total autonomy over your life and you're free to make any decision with no repercussions at all. See, if you're a free citizen, there are literally hundreds and thousands of laws that you now get to follow because you are a free citizen. Some of these laws make sense. You can't just go shoot your neighbor. You can't just ignore all the traffic lights and run through them. Sometimes the laws that we live in don't make much sense to us. Anyone have to purchase a city sticker in the city of Chicago before? Yeah, I, I was driving in this week and I noticed that there's an 11 on mine. I'm like, oh no, it's 10. That means in the next 60 days I have to go buy a city sticker. Right? I'm like, I pay enough to live in the city, the taxes of the city, and now I have to pay like a hundred and something dollars just to park my car on the street. And it reminded me of last year when, when I had to go refill my city sticker because I'm like, all right, I'm not free to do whatever I want. I have to do this. I go to sign it up because they send you that email reminder and you go to sign up and it says, there is no car with this license plate registered in the state of Illinois. I like walk back out and look at my car and I'm like, yeah, there is. There is indeed. So I tried again. You can look it up like five different ways. And it still said there is, you have to go into one of our facilities and do it in person. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to go to the Secretary of State. It is a sanctifying experience in my life to have to go there. So there is one by my house. It's a kind of an it's a hybrid, I guess. It's not a full Secretary of State. So I go right as it opens, first thing in the morning, I go in line. I say, hey, I need my new city sticker because I need to follow the law. I'm not free to do whatever I want. And she looks up my information. And she goes, um, this city sticker is, uh, is a city sticker, but it's not on your car. And I go, yes, it is. And she's like, no, it's not. It's registered to this car. I literally have to walk out with her to my car. And she's like, oh, yeah, look, there's your sticker, and it's on your car. And I say, yeah, I need one. She goes, well, we can't help you here. You got to go to the other secretary of state. I drive by it. The line is literally like 30 people out the door. I'm like, not today, not today. I don't want to be that sanctified. So the next morning I have to get up right as it opens, stand in line out in the cold. So I'm one of the first people in after like two hours of them trying to tell me that my car actually isn't my car. Like all this, finally I could get my stinking city sticker of Chicago. Why? Because even though I'm free as a resident of Chicago, I still have rules and things that I have to follow. I'm free, but I'm not free to do whatever I want. Christian freedom, what it means to follow God in freedom, means that we follow God now with the ability to follow God's rules and God's regulations for our lives. It doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want with our lives. When we move from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness, we have this freedom in Christ, but it's a freedom to obey Christ, to live into what Jesus would have for us. See, oftentimes when, when I interact with people and they object to being a Christian, 
At least in a lot of my experience, it's not always, and most of the time, it's not because of intellectual reasons, it's not philosophical reasons, but ultimately, there's this question that, that often it comes down to this, and maybe they don't say it this way, but they say something like this, well, I don't know if I want to give up my freedom and submit to God, right? I don't know if I want to give up the freedom I have and submit to God, But what this passage teaches is that's the wrong question to ask. They're not asking a question that's true because they're under the illusion that they have freedom when in reality they are a slave to sin. So the question we need to ask ourselves is not do I give up my freedom to follow God, but do I want to be a slave to sin or do I want to be a slave to obedience and righteousness in God? We are all enslaved by something. And if we think that when we live life apart from Jesus, we have this great freedom, well, you actually don't. You're just a slave to sin on an endless cycle, overwhelmed by all of the things that you are bound to. Christianity is not something that takes away these freedoms that you think you may have apart from God, but it's simply instead of serving yourself, you now serve the one who loves you unconditionally. You move from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness. Paul continues in this passage. Look down with me at verse 17. He says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Paul uses some particular and kind of unique language in verse 17 here when he talks about our conversion experience. He says that that we were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. That obedience from the heart is is talking about this fact that we are now following God with all we are. It's not just a status change, but it's lived out in who we are as well that it emphasizes this, what's supposed to flow from it. And this freedom from sin, again, is not a freedom to live however we want, but instead of being there, verse 18, we've been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. He continues in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. This idea, this metaphor of slavery, he doesn't want them to think that they could run it down. God is not a degrading or fearful taskmaster who wants to ruin our lives, like sometimes was the case, although not always. But then he continues, he says this, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which leads to what? More lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The second point that that Paul is making in this passage is this exclusivity of slavery. The exclusivity of slavery, meaning this, you're either serving one of these two masters in your life. You're either serving sin, which has some natural consequences, or you're now a slave to righteousness, which has other outcomes and consequences as well. There is no middle ground. There is no straddling between the two. There isn't a third option that's like, well, I'm going to do this instead. See, no one can serve two masters. We're a slave either to sin or to righteousness. Jesus, again, talked about this idea in the Gospel of Matthew. 
chapter 6, verse 24, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that's what he was talking about in that passage. But you could put God and anything in here. You cannot serve God and yourself. You can't serve God and your career. You can't serve God and this, whatever it would be, you can't have either of these things as ultimate in your life. It's one or the other. And there's this command that he has in this passage at the end of verse 19. So now present your members. Give over of yourself with wholehearted devotion. Present yourself, your members, as slaves to righteousness. He says it this way because it's a command that's to be lived out in our lives. It's an imperative command. But Paul, in this passage and throughout the book of Romans, and it's seen throughout the whole New Testament, does this in a specific way. And if you've taken many Bible study classes, or even if you've just read much about the Bible, you'll see this pattern. But it's important for us to see it here tonight. That Paul starts with what we would call, if you think back to like high school or junior high grammar, what he would call the indicative. The indicative tone, meaning kind of who you are. Right? He starts with who you are. You are now a slave to righteousness. That's why we're talking in this series about identity, because who we are is so important in life. And once that's grounded, once he's affirmed who, we are, who you now are in Jesus, he moves into commands called the imperative. Right? We all remember this is imperative. It's a command. And the command here is based in who we are now. Because you're a slave to righteousness, present yourselves, offer your lives, submit every single part of you to following after God. See, it's important for us to realize that the imperative, how we live out our faith, flows from the indicative, who we are in Jesus. And I think at times in Christianity— we can overemphasize one of these things and it actually leads us into error in our Christian life. On one side, you can have people who overemphasize this idea of who we are in Jesus to the exclusion of all of the commands that God has to obey, to submit, to present, all of these things. And they just say, well, God's done all the work for me. I don't have to ever do anything at all about who I am in Jesus. God, God is who he's made me to be. And I call that version of living life Christian laziness. Christian laziness. Where it just sits back on, well, well God's just going to do everything and I don't even need to make any real effort or substance or try and change anything in my life at all. It's all up to God. And it overemphasizes this idea. Um, you, you can see it in the song, which is not popular anymore, but used to be popular. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, just take the wheel, just take over and do it, right? Like, let go and let God. You don't need to really try anymore. And as I thought of, of how this life is lived out, I was reminded of a kind of an old joke. I'm sorry, it's super corny, but I thought it, would, it just is helpful to me. A joke of someone who was stranded on their rooftop during a flood, and someone in a rowboat comes up to them and says, hey, do you need any help? And the person stranded said, no, 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 no. God's going to save me. They go away. Someone in a motorboat comes up to this person stranded. Do you need any help? No, no, no. I don't need help. God's going to save me. A helicopter flies over this person as the floodwaters are rising. Says, hey, can I, can I help you? The person says, nope. God's going to save me. They die. They go to heaven. They ask God, God, why didn't you save me? 
Well, I sent a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What else do you want? Right? Like, he's like, you just have to take some initiative. I, I sent these opportunities, but you just sat back. I'm like, well, it doesn't take any effort on my behalf because it's just this view of Christian laziness that there's no effort or, or, um, or initiative put forth on our behalf. But on the other side of things are people who emphasize, overemphasize the imperative commands of Scripture, which I call Christian legalists. Christian legalists. That they overemphasize, excuse me, the ethical demands of what God has for our lives, that they forget that actually it's Jesus who does the saving and not our own efforts to get to righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit that works alongside with us to walk in righteousness. It's not just all the things that we've done. And we see this, this heart of legalism, and one of the ways I think that we can see in our own lives is when we see a command in Scripture— And then we make like four other commands to make sure we don't come close to the one command in Scripture, right? And so like there's been many different variations of this throughout history. You know, it was like, well, gambling is wrong. This is one of my parents' generation that, that I know they had a lot. Gambling is wrong. Therefore, I shouldn't play cards. Therefore, I can't even play solitaire, Because that could be seen as down a slippery slope towards gambling, and that's a sin. So I'm going to create like four walls of separation that would never let me go there. The Bible says not to be drunk. That's clear. So I'm never going to go to anywhere that serves alcohol. I'm not going to be friends with anyone who drinks alcohol, and I will never drink alcohol ever in my life. And anyone who does is not a follower of Jesus Christ. Because I want to move four steps away from sin. Now, I want to be careful here. There are appropriate places for boundaries in our walk with God. I'm not saying that you should never, that you should walk as close to sin as possible. That is not at all what I'm saying. But oftentimes in our hearts, these imperative commands of what we need to do, of what God calls us to become so overwhelming and consuming that we live lives as if we are saving ourselves. Whereas God is actually the one who saved us. And the legalist heart thinks it's all about what they've done and they focus so much on the commands of Scripture that they miss who we now are in Jesus. As a slave to righteousness, we stand right in the middle of both of those things. We realize that we were once a slave to sin who's been set free to now be a slave of righteousness. And because of who we are in Jesus, it changes how we live in the world. In the Bible, there is no concept, there's no idea of a person who follows after Jesus and whose lives look just like the world's. It doesn't exist. Instead, they're looked to be as radical. People saw them and were confused and astounded because their values, their priorities, how they spent their time, their money, their energy, their passions were so different from the world that it stood out. Because they recognized who they were in Christ and that compelled them to live their lives differently. Does, do our lives stand out in the world? If we have been set free from slavery to sin and moved to be a slave to righteousness, our lives must look different because of who we are in God. And this command to live that out, to present the members of ourselves to God, is this all-out command that in every single area of our lives to seek after him, that our lives must look different because of who we now serve. A change in status 
requires a change in behavior. A change in status requires that we live differently. I've been married for nine years now, over nine years, and I realized real quick that when I went from single to married, from bachelor to husband, that there were some things in my life that needed to change. My Saturdays were no longer spent watching 15 straight hours of college football. That's how I wish they were spent sometimes, but no, that's not what I get to do with my time anymore. And on and on it goes. Why? Because when my status has changed, my behavior then must change as well. When we have moved from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness, our behavior must change to be in line with the priorities and the values of our king now. Paul continues in this passage, verse 20, says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is an interesting phrase. What he means by this passage is you were free, meaning you couldn't do righteous things. Nothing that you could do within you could actually be righteous before God. You were incapable of righteousness. Verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And in the Bible, there's this idea of fruit. Fruit means it's clearly seen. It's the evidence, the overflow, the behavior of our lives, right? I'm not a farmer, nor I will ever pretend to be one. But if I walk out and I see an apple on a tree, I'm pretty sure I know what kind of tree it is. It's an apple tree. And if I see an orange on the tree, it's an evidence of what's inside. And what he's saying is the fruit, the exterior evidence of our lives must be seen. And if we are slaves to sin, that fruit is this, the things which we are now ashamed, which ultimately leads to death. But verse 22, but now, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, there are two options of slavery. And the consequences of these are seen. That's the third thing that we see here in this passage are the consequences of the slavery to which we live our lives. If we live our lives enslaved to sin, to following our own heart and our own desires, it leads to the consequence of death. Permanent death. Physical, yes, that's coming for all of us, but more importantly, spiritual death. Death that separates us from God. No hope, no joy, everything set apart from God. That's the consequence of living our lives enslaved to sin. But if through the power of Jesus Christ, we are moved from being a slave to the sin to a slave of righteousness, it says in verse 22, we get this end, eternal life. That's the consequence of submitting ourselves to being a slave of God, a slave to righteousness because of what he has done. We get life. Jesus talking about why he had come versus following after Satan and sin. He says this in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And as Jesus talks about this idea of eternal life, it's not a future life, but eternal meaning it starts now and carries on for eternity. That God changes our hearts, he changes our lives now, and that we forever can follow him and enjoy him forever. 
How does this transfer take place from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness? Paul summarizes these eight verses, and he summarizes really all of Romans chapter 6 with one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love this verse. Whenever I get the chance— I actually did this last week to, share, to sit down and to share with someone what it means to be a Christian. This is almost always the first verse I turn to. It says this, the wages, the payment, the deserving thing that you get, the wages of your sin, of being a follower of sin in your life is death. But contrasted from that, the free gift Not the things that you deserve, but the free gift, what God has graciously given to you, is what eternal life. How is that possible? It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says Jesus moves us from being dead to sin to alive to Christ, to being enslaved to sin to now being a slave of righteousness. It's because of his work on the cross, his life, then his death, then he rose from the dead, defeating over death and the sin in our lives that we can have this powerful change of being enslaved to sin, but now being made alive and enslaved to righteousness. And as we close our time of worship tonight, we're going to get to participate and remember together what Jesus has done for us in partaking of communion together. And as we remember that all of this that we've talked about, not just tonight, but all the last month, this identity change that God wants to make in our lives is not possible through our own hard efforts or work. Yes, it should be seen in our lives, but it's only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for his life, That he lived a perfect, obedient life, fully submitting to the Father in all things. That he went to the cross and substituted himself in our place, bore bore our sins so that we could be made right with you. That after three days he rose again from the dead, defeated death in the grave. God, I pray that we would live our lives as slaves to righteousness that the world we live in would see the difference that you have caused within our hearts. God, we thank you for the change that only you can bring in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.